Good morning. While I was at university, the college was running a series of weekend seminars on various topics as part of their student welfare program. It was intended to get us out of central London and the pressures there, away from our degree subject, to talk about something challenging, but not actually professional. The first one I saw uh, was entitled, Is Belief in God Intellectually Credible? And along with a friend from the Christian Union, uh, we decided that we ought to go and make sure there was a Christian voice heard in that discussion. And among the group of some 50 science and engineering students, there was a great openness to consider the possibility of God. And the conclusion we came to was that even if people didn't believe themselves in a God, such a belief was a perfectly reasonable position for a scientist to take. The idea that there's a conflict between science and Christianity goes back at least as far as the time of Galileo. Now, Galileo was a devout Catholic, and he was something of a polymath, although probably best known for his work in astronomy and for his dispute with the Catholic Church about whether the sun and planets went around the Earth or all of the planets, including the Earth, went around the sun. Galileo developed advanced telescopes for the time, and he was able to make observations that led him to support the sun-centered or heliocentric view. And this brought him to the attention of the Catholic Church and the Inquisition, who were adamant that the Earth was static and that the center of the universe, and that that was what the Bible stated. And they used passages such as Joshua 10, verse 13, where it says, on, that, on the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord, and he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Elijon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took their vengeance on their enemies. And other verses, like Psalm 93, verse 1, and very similar ones in other Psalms, where it says, he established the world, it shall never be moved. And Ecclesiastes 1, verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down, and it hurries to the place where it rises. And those were the sort of proof texts they used to justify the church view at the time. Galileo was ordered to abandon his idea in 1616, and in 1643 was tried again because he appeared to have broken his word and argued again for that heliocentric, sun-centered view of the solar system. Under threat of torture, he was forced to recant that belief. But he's reputed to have said to himself, almost as he signed the document, but it does move. But this wasn't Christianity or the Bible in conflict with science. It was the leadership of the Catholic Church sticking rigidly to a very literal and very wrong interpretation of a particular scriptural text. The texts themselves don't actually contradict the evidence from science. We can easily see that those passages describe what happens from the point of view of the observer, what we see on Earth. We see the sun come up and go down. We don't see the Earth going round the sun. Joshua and Ecclesiastes are those. And in Psalms, the phrase used is a poetic image. There is no conflict there between the Bible and science. Now, there have been, of course, other similar cases down the years, and many would immediately cite the opposition Darwin faced from religious people when he put forward the theory of evolution as one of these cases. 
But while there were many religious people who did oppose Darwin's theory, there were also many scientists who didn't agree. And there are still raised, raised, uh, questions raised by scientists about the theory of evolution. Before we go any further, though, I want to go over some basics. First of all, what is science? Well, science, and more particularly the scientific method, is a means to investigate the world around us, to learn how it works. Observation and logical deduction from that observation leads to a hypothesis, an idea, a concept. And that can be used to develop experiments that can confirm or deny that particular hypothesis. It is, of course, easy to be selective, even unconsciously, in the way that experiments are designed or the results are assessed to bias towards your preferred option. So any published paper, which is the results of, a, of a, uh, such an experiment, will therefore be subject to review by other independent scientists who will also try to reproduce those results and to prove or disprove the predictions that the theory makes in the real world. In other words, at heart, science is descriptive. It observes some aspect of the world around us and tries to dig into the mechanism that creates the behavior we see. A simple case we probably all remember from school is Isaac Newton and the theory of gravity. He saw the apple fall in his orchard and wondered why it fell down and not up. From that spark, he developed his theory of gravity. And to the bane of many school children since, he also developed calculus to, to actually prove what he was doing. And gravity can be expressed in a simple equation. It links the mass of the two objects, the distance between them. And that's what we use to send men to the moon and probes to Mars. But even well-established scientific theories like that aren't sacrosanct. They're subject to change, and they get superseded by new theories as new facts become available. Newton's work on gravity works well in most cases. But as we became able to look at things that are very small, or things that are very large, and things going very fast, scientists began to find that Newton's simple equation no longer gave the right answers. And these discrepancies were predicted in quantum mechanics for the very small, and Einstein's theory of relativity for the very large or fast. And yet we know that neither of these theories is actually the complete answer either. While you can work the maths to derive Newton's equations from quantum mechanics, or you can work his derive Newton's equations from relativity, what you can't do yet is go from quantum mechanics to relativity or relativity to quantum mechanics with a single set of maths. The search is therefore on for a new theory which covers both extremes as well as the middle. But in the meantime, all three are perfectly viable ways of working within the field that they cover. And the other thing with science to note is that you need to prove or disprove something. You need to be able to experiment. Yet there are some areas of study, some subjects, which aren't really we're not able to experiment on beyond identifying actually, we need to look for this sort of evidence to see if this is right. And that means we're limited to observation and logical thought alone, with support from maths, again, in those sciences where it's, where it's meaningful to that. Theories resulting from this sort of observation are an interpretation. Now, admittedly, 
It's a highly informed interpretation. It's based on a backlog of history and experience and evidence, but it's still not amenable to being tested by experiment in the way, say, Newton's gravitational theory or Einstein's relativity is. And this is particularly true for areas like the study of the early formation of the Earth and the origins of life. We have just one example to study, the one we see around us. And we're inside the system, which means we can't be sitting outside as independent observers. All we can do is look at what we see now and deduce from that. So let's now turn to look at the Bible and the foundation we have there. The Bible is the revealed word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tell us, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who longs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. It therefore has authority because it comes from God. And we can also be sure that scripture is truthful because it comes from God. In John 17, when Jesus was praying, he said to God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, verse 17. The word used here is, an is not an adjective, a noun. God's word is truth itself. There is no higher standard of truth that the Bible must conform to, but it is the ultimate standard of truth. Truth is what God says, and we have what God says in the Bible. But being the truth does not necessarily mean that the Bible gives us every fact there is to know about any one subject. As a simple example, we don't have physical descriptions about most Bible characters. And where we do have some description, it's only partial. We know, for example, Saul was the tallest man in Israel and most handsome, 1 Samuel 9 verse 2. And David was ruddy, had beautiful eyes and was handsome, 1 Samuel 16, 12. And not only does the Bible tell us everything about the subjects it covers, it doesn't talk about everything. Its purpose is to reveal God's character and nature, to reveal our need of salvation and God's plan to deliver that salvation through Jesus. The content of the Bible is therefore dedicated to and sufficient for that purpose. For example, the Bible records a lot of the history of Israel as God's chosen people but it only touches on the history of the countries that surround Israel, where they interact with Israel itself. And the Bible isn't a scientific textbook, given that most of my old textbooks were at least 30% advanced maths and sometimes more. I think most of us can be truly grateful for that particular mercy. It was written by people of an earlier age and intended to be heard by people all down the years from when they wrote it right up to us and through until Jesus comes again, as well as obviously for us today. The human authors of the various books in the Bible use the concepts and the knowledge that they had to describe and explain the events they wrote about under God's inspiration. We can't expect, therefore, that what they wrote will correspond with modern scientific language necessarily, as we saw in the case of Galileo. And if they were written in modern scientific language, the Bible would have, been, have sections that were completely incomprehensible to the people in years before and potentially uncomprehensible to us if it was written in language of people yet to come for their science. And that would be contrary to another two fundamental truths about Scripture. The Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, maintaining spiritual life and knowing God's will. 
And if the Bible is necessary for those purposes, it has to be clear, clear enough that it be understood by ordinary people throughout the years. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 and 7 says, Keep these words I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. The people of Israel were expected to be able to understand Scripture well enough to teach their children. Similarly, Jesus expected an understanding of Scripture when he was discussing with both the religious leaders and the ordinary people. For example, when in Matthew 22, verse 29, he was debating with the Sadducees, he said to them, you're wrong because you don't know the Scripture nor the power of God, and then went on to answer their question and explain why they were wrong based on God's Word. So how do science and Christianity relate? Well, science is actually a result of the view of the world resulting from Christian belief. Well, why do I say that? Well, firstly, belief in one God leads people to expect a uniformity in nature, that the underlying laws of nature remain the same in time and space. If this wasn't the case, if the universe was capricious and irregular, it wouldn't be capable of being studied systematically and scientifically. Secondly, a world created by a rational God of order means we can expect a world that is both ordered and rational. Those early scientists in the 16th century reasoned that the universe must be orderly and worthy of investigation because it was the work of an intelligent creator. And thirdly, because God is the creator of the universe, he is therefore separate from the created world. And this means experimentation is justified. Under other belief systems, where, for example, forms of matter are seen as gods, or where nature is God, this wouldn't be the case. And if you were to believe, as some have historically, that matter is essentially evil, it wouldn't be wise to experiment. Dr. Peter Hodgson, who was a lecturer in nuclear physics at Oxford University, summed it up. He said, Christianity provides just those beliefs that are essential for science and the whole moral climate that encouraged its growth. Now, I'm sure at some time we've all seen a glorious sunset or a majestic mountain view or even just looked at a flower at the delicate detail in there, the repeating pattern in the center of a daisy and had that wow feeling. As Christians, we see this as our responding to the wonderful work God did in creating the world. But even non-Christians get that wow. In our reading this morning from Psalms, it speaks of seeing the glory of God in the world around us. Paul said something similar in Romans 1, verse 20. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things God has made. But if the world is amazing and can leave us awestruck, how much more is this the case for a scientist? To be able to probe and study the mechanisms that underlie the world that we live in, to see and find a whole future rail, further realm of amazement and wonder. In my own area of a study of physics, the fact we can develop, delve into the subatomic realm and see the inherent simplicity and elegance that exists there. Simplicity that nevertheless allows the amazing diversity and complexity of the universe we see around us. It should leave us in awe at the ingenuity and the genius of God when he designed the world. Many scientists, 
including some of the most famous, have been and are Christians and have expressed this in different ways. Copernicus, the astronomer who died in 1543, described God as the best and most orderly workman of all based on his work. Kepler, who found the, discovered the laws of planetary motion, said he was thinking God's thoughts after him with what he discovered. But if that's the case, why is the common view that there's a conflict between science and the Christian faith? Well, one alleged conflict is the area of miracles. That we can't have the laws of physics broken, the laws of nature broken arbitrarily. But this surely depends on whether you accept there's a creator God or not. If the world came into being spontaneously, without the intervention of any higher being, driven by a set of inherent natural laws, then miracles, a breaking of those natural laws, actually can't happen. On the other hand, if you believe that God created both the world we see and the laws that govern it, and therefore he is beyond those laws, then it's not intellectually credible to say that God cannot intervene and supersede those laws if he so desires and if he has a purpose for it. So miracles, if you believe, are most definitely possible. And the second area of conflict is evolution. First of all, uh, microevolution, the adaption of species to a changing environment, definitely happens. I'll take that up front. It can be understood, it can be seen, and that doesn't conflict with what's in the Bible. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, for example, there was a species of moth living in the UK called the peppered moth. These were mostly light-colored with dark speckles on their wings. And when they sat on a tree trunk, they blended in against the weathered bark and the lichen that grew in the clean air. And therefore, they were hidden from predators. When the Industrial Revolution happened, then those light-colored moths became easy prey because the soot and the muck that we threw into the environment killed off the lichen and soot-stained the bark. And suddenly, these light-colored moths stood out like a sore thumb. And it was the rarer dark-colored moth with light speckles of the same species that now were hidden. And suddenly, the species moved from being light with dark speckles to dark with light speckles. And that is microevolution. Either colored moth was still a peppered moth. And it was that variation that Darwin saw and extrapolated into his theory of evolution. When he wrote The Origin of Species, Darwin is aware that there was very little, if any, evidence for macroevolution, the change of one species into another in the record that they had available at the time, but was sure that such evidence would be find, found. Now, while some possible transition fossils showing that migration have been found, they are still relatively few compared with the total of fossils that have been located overall. And what we don't see is, in the fossil record, is species showing a gradual ongoing shift towards a different species. And that's resulted in various add-on theories being added to, to evolution, the theory of evolution, to try and explain the difference. In some ways, it leaves evolutionary theory looking a little bit like planetary orbits before Kepler, where everyone was certain the planets moved in circles and they had to add extra little circles and more subcircles to try and explain what they saw in the night sky. 
Now, while most life scientists would argue that the evolutionary mechanism would produce the range, complexity, and diversity of species that we see today over time, the whole probability of the process working in a timescale commensurate with the age of the Earth seems to be ignored. And even if we accept that complex structures like the eye or the hand or the thumb that Barry mentioned last week, citing Newton, they could develop in stages, what about things like sexual reproduction? Let's break this down into steps. If an asexual animal changes to have working male or female characteristics, there would need to be another individual of the same basic type that developed the opposite gender at the same time and nearby for it to do any good. Otherwise, it is just going to die out. And the sexual organs they develop would need to be compatible. Otherwise, again, it doesn't work. Now, I'll accept I am no expert on probability, though it is part of my degree subject in a way. But the chance of all of those necessary conditions being met all at the same time seem incredibly small. And some people have done some calculations, and the numbers they come out with are truly staggering. I saw one estimate of some one, one in 346,000 millionth for something like that happening. So what does the Bible teach about the origin of life? Well, Genesis 1, 12 to 25, describes God creating plants and animals after their kind. This allows for variations within those kind, whether natural, like the peppered moth, or driven by us, by selective breeding. But it doesn't fit with one type of animal changing into another. And kind can cover a wide band or a narrow band. Looking into the Hebrew text, there is a significant use of words in the whole passage of 1 Genesis. In three places in that passage, the word bara is used, made or created. For the rest, it's yehi, let, is used. And the three verses with bara are, in verse 1, the original creation of the universe for everything. Then verse 25, the creation of animal life. And the creation of man in verse 27. It looks, therefore, as if the author is intending to mark these steps in creation as being a new beginning, a major new stage, a new work by God, different to what's gone before, and at the other times allowing more, more process, perhaps. But this would mean that we're not the result of some random process in a clockwork universe that runs with strict laws and can't be broken. Mankind was deliberately created by God. We were created in his image. We're special and we're precious to him. So where does that leave us? Well, science is looking in detail at the universe in which we live and seeking to understand and describe the processes and mechanisms that shape and drive the world that we can see. It can't answer questions about the nature of God, apart from what we can see in its handiwork. However, there is an easy trap to fall into, and many have, in thinking that whatever science can explain removes the need for God, gradually squeezing God into a smaller and smaller and more, less and less significant place. And unfortunately, it does seem that some scientists, regrettably, have no place for God in their thinking. And again, that probably unconsciously ends up in biasing their interpretation of what they observe to fit in with the godless world they inhabit. But equally, we mustn't make the same mistake that the Catholic Church did at the time of Galileo 
and shut our eyes to what the science is telling us about the universe, while recognizing that science is a work in progress because there is still a lot to learn. Where we see differences between science and faith, such as evolution, we need to recognize that the science may not be right. There are discoveries yet to make. At the same time, we need to look carefully at what the Bible teaches, or more importantly, perhaps look at the Bible carefully to see what it teaches and make sure that what it teaches is what we think it teaches, not something that we've put our own bias on top of. If we accept the Bible as God's word, that it's authoritative without error, then it must be possible for the discoveries of science and the narrative of the Bible to be reconciled. But we also need to be mindful of the different purposes of the science in the Bible. Think of it like asking scientists to analyze a cake. They can talk about its nutritional properties. They can talk about the chemistry that happens in the baking of it. They can tell us about the structure of the molecules that make it up. But they can't tell us why it was made. It's only when you meet the baker and ask her why she made the cake that you will get the definitive answer of why. And for our universe, that explanation has been given to us by the Creator. That's the purpose of the Bible. It's God revealing himself to his creation. His account of why he made the world and what he's done to repair the damage that we've done to his creation by our sin. The damage that we continue to do by our sin. And how, more importantly, how he's made a way to rescue us from that sin and its consequence through Jesus' death and resurrection. When there are challenges, when science seems to be in conflict with the Bible and there aren't necessarily easy answers, don't panic. We know the person who made the world, who made the fact that science is found. The conflict that we perceive at heart is often not between science and the Bible. It's between those who have no room for God in their world and their worldview and the reality that God exists and created everything. Ultimately, there is no conflict between science and the Bible. And even if we have to wait until Jesus returns to see how, we can be sure that what science discovers and what the Bible tells us are complete, completely compatible because they came from the same person. The God who created the universe is the God that inspired the Bible, and he doesn't lie.